last week after uh, I've seen a lot of a lot of folks that were out of town uh, this this last week or the week before. Uh, last week after church, Titus and I like skipped out of here and took a really special trip. Uh, we we jumped on a plane because you can fly um, free with under two year olds, and he turned two on Wednesday, so we got it like right under the wire because it would have cost like double. And we left after church, and we went to visit my brother, my pregnant sister-in-law, and my nephews five months younger than Titus. And we jammed this trip full of stuff. We went apple picking. We went to a Cubs-Cards game at Bush Stadium. Um, we went to the zoo. We saw the St. Louis Zoo has polar bears about 50 feet from flamingos, which is really a strange thing. Throughout the whole trip, I couldn't help but remember like childhood trips and adventures um, that we had taken. Like, for instance, like I, I vaguely just, I, I, I probably was, I was older than Titus, but not much, vaguely remember trips to like St. Louis that we would take, or uh, to uh, Cincinnati that we would take with my family to see my great grandpa. And when I was a little boy, like I only vaguely remember like playing with Lincoln Logs and like He-Man was on the television and then, like, my great-grandpa's lazy boy. Like, that, that's, then I, but I kind of remember how it felt, right? Uh, and I don't really remember details, but I remember the look and the, and the feel of, of being there. So I spent most of the early part of this week just kind of weirdly looking through Titus's eyes and starting to remember some of those things and kind of, wondering what it felt like for him, like the different scale of things. You know, when you're at the airport and everything's fast, like the planes on the tarmac seem monstrous, like the moving walkway seems like it's like really booking, you know? We did that many times. You know, the, the crowds seem really crazy, and like this wasn't Christmas, this, this was Labor Day, which is not nearly the crush. And, and then like that wonder when you're on the plane and you're looking out and you slowly lift up and everything shifts almost like a miniature, like a, like a model. Like that kind of scale, that kind of wonder, that kind of smallness that you had when you were a kid. Do you remember that at all? Like it, it, it takes something to jar that loose. That when you're a two-year-old, like you have that feeling that everything is new because it kind of is. Or at least everything has the potential for newness. That there's more than I know going on because there is more than I know going on. More than we can touch, more than we can know. That creation and, and culture, the things that we make out of creation, they speak. They, they, they tell us something with imperfect words, with wounded words, that there's a a glory, almost, almost a halo around things, you know, uh, with that sort of vision. I think the same sort of feeling, the same sort of vision shows up in the Psalms. There's this surplus of meaning, this surplus of grace that's just overwhelming when David gushes in Psalm 19. I'm going to invite Matt Tintero to come up and read. And this is, this is, this Psalm 19 is, C.S. Lewis called it one of the finest poems ever written. Not just psalms, but poems ever written. So no pressure, Matt. Go. Yeah. Heaven is declaring God's glory. 
The sky is proclaiming his handiwork. One day gushes the news to the next, and one night informs another what needs to be known. Of course, there's no speech, no words. Their voices can't be heard. But their sound extends throughout the world. Their words reach the ends of the earth. God has made a tent in heaven for the sun. The sun is like a groom coming out of his honeymoon suite. Like a warrior, it thrills at running its course. It rises in one end of the sky. Its circuit is complete at the other. Nothing escapes its heat. The Lord's instruction is perfect, reviving one's very being. The Lord's laws are faithful, making naive people wise. The Lord's regulations are right, gladdening the heart. The Lord's commands are pure, giving light to the eyes. Honoring the Lord is correct, lasting forever. The Lord's judgments are true. All of these are righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than tons of pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, even dripping off the honeycomb. No doubt about it, your servant is enlightened by them. There is great reward in keeping them. But can anyone know what they've accepted? what they've accidentally done wrong, clearly of, clear me of, my, of any unknown sin, and save your servant from willful sins. Don't let them rule me, then I'll, be then I'll be completely blameless. I'll be innocent of great wrongdoing. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks Matt. So David writes this song first and foremost about God's work, his handiwork, his masterpiece, the world being his canvas, the heavens declaring God's glory, the triune God's own love and loveliness leaking out into everything he's made. The message paraphrases this. God's glory is on tour in the skies, God craft on exhibit across the horizon. This world, the one David's, of David's spiritual song, this one that is remembered and sung by Israel and the church, it's our world too. When we read and when we sing these psalms, we're welcomed back into the place where we already are, an enchanted world of beauty in the middle of brokenness, of majesty and of glory, if we only look up, of grace and of possibility everywhere we go. This poem is so playful. One day tells to the next. It's, a, it's like one day gossiping to the next just about how awesome God is. It can't contain it. Night then chimes in, but night doesn't even have the words to talk. The heavens scream and shout for joy, but not out loud. Words fail. Perhaps this is a good instruction for us in our life with God, in our approach to praising God. Just be quiet. <laughs> Take it all in. Bask in it. Soak in it. The vastness, the, the unbelievability of it all. To be still and to know that He is God the creator of the heavens and earth, to experience first and foremost 
and then worry about explaining later. Mary Oliver uh, gave us instructions for living along these lines. She says, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Simple instructions for life. Will you all pray with me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the thing about developing this sort of wonder, that would have been awesome, right? <laughs> the thing about developing this sort of wonder, this kind of praise that seeks to be increasingly aware, increasingly in awe of all that God has done and is doing, to look at the world like a two-year-old, whose main comprehension of any of this is that it's more capacious than you even know or know what to do with, is that that, that kind of micro or that kind of macro praise that's huge, it, it, it then leads to micro praise of looking around. And then it leads back to macro praise. Like we look up and we look down and around and we look in and then we look back up um, because it's all just too much. It's, you're, you're like a kid at the IMAX, you know, like where you just have to look and look and look and you can't look enough. Here's what I mean by this, this kind of praise loop. When we look up and we look out, we let the Psalms' poetic language form our hearts and our imaginations of an enchanted universe that's carefully crafted and it's playfully sustained. Then we necessarily look around. We look in. We marvel at the intricacies of God's handiwork. Um, this is like... I remember the, f the first time I, I saw, I used to work for my dad, and I saw these big, like, dot matrix printers that we had, like, big, like, they could print six-foot-wide stuff. I remember being so disappointed when I f got close to one, because when you get close to them, you just see dots, right? Like, <laughs> it looks so awesome from afar, and then when you get, the, resolu the resolution is just not there, and it's just dots. But that's not the way it is with God. When we look up and we look big and then we look closer, the resolution just continues to focus, and there's always more, 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 a surplus. Then we, we join together in the praise of those things around us that we see, where human beings made in the image of God, but we join in the community of creation. We're human beings made in the image of God. If that's not something to hang your hat on, if that's not something to get excited about, the other Psalms tell us that we're just a little lower than the angels. Like I imagine like on God's door, there's like that chart where you chart your size and there's like angels just right coming under the angels. But we're part of a network of praise, bound together in praise. In some sense, we learn something about how to praise God from the sun and from the moon and from the trees and from the mountains. When we sing our Creator's praise, not only with our voices, but our whole lives, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we, we, we start to fit. We fit in the landscape with trees clapping hands and mountains bowing down. We don't just become tourists on a hike catching the scenery, but residents in a world brimming with grace. There's scholar uh, Richard Bauckham says it like this, it is distinctly human to bring praise and conscious expression with our voices, to get our words around these things. 
but the creatures, everything else around us, reminds us that this distinctively human form of praise is worthless unless, like them, we live our whole lives to the glory of God. The trees, just being trees, are living to the glory of God. It changes everything for the way we view the world. It means we look around, we don't just see the world as some irreparable, like, handbasket case going to hell. But with, and I'm referencing a lot of poets because I think the poets are the only ones that really know how to get words around this stuff. With the poet Hopkins, we see a world charged with the grandeur of God. Shining like shook foil are his words. We not only see fingerprints of what God has done, but we see potential for what God is doing and will do. We see particular people and places, peculiar people and places, scarred and marred by sin and death, but in process of restoral and restoration, of repair. Another poet, Christian Wyman, speaks of this thrilling in-between, in-between our createdness and our recreatedness, where every riven thing God has made sings his being simply by being the thing it is. Stone and tree and sky, man who sings and sees and wonders why. In all this, I'm reminded of Thomas Merton's revelation in the middle of downtown Louisville. You don't have to be like at the Eno or at a state park or like the photo I sent on the emails, like looking at moon over half or a moon over half dome at like Yosemite or anything. Like in the middle of downtown Louisville, which Louisville is nice, but it's not the most beautiful thing in the world. This is what Merton catches, this glimpse. In Louisville, this is a quote, in Louisville at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we are total strangers. It was like waking up from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, a world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are walking around shining like the sun. There's no way of telling people that they're walking around shining like the sun. That insight has to be from our end. We have to see that. Faced with an insight of glory, Merton turned into that day that couldn't speak because they didn't have words. When we see God's glory in creation, it completely changes our perception of the same people and things and places that we've become accustomed to kind of screening out or, or muting 
that we lose our ability to wonder because we think we know about it. We lose our ability to care. But when glory re-enters our vision, wonder and care and empathy and love and grace follow. So what does this mean for us? It means that you've never met a person or place that isn't or couldn't be part of God's story, like a main character. It means that this world is not disposable. It means things matter. Matter matters. Not in a stressful, controlling, or greedy way where we, we, we just obsess, but that in Christ, God has already begun the new creation. And that resurrection and eternity peek through all the time, really normal things. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear it, if we have hearts, hearts open to be in the right places, normally the least likely places, where God's bringing his kingdom right under our noses. It means that as we enter into the second year of Oak Church, that we'll have to continue to grow in our ability to take risk. Because this, this way of seeing this worldview is inherently risky. What do I mean by that? We never get to rest on our laurels because we're always going to be surprised. We can never exhaust the potential for grace to surprise us. That we won't stop hoping until our hopes are fulfilled in Christ's return. And in the meantime, we're going to join God in his renewal of all things. Not because we know necessarily what it's going to look like, but because we've already begun to feel what it feels like. Because our own lives have been changed. We've been restored. We're being renewed. New creation is already broken in, in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And because that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and me. That's why this is important. <clears throat> so we look up into the macro, and then we look down. That macro is sometimes like the the book of nature is what they call it. But we also need to grow more and more receptive and perceptive and more and more hungry for the book of Scripture. Our appetites need to grow and grow as we consume God's word as if it were sweet, sweet honey. That's awesome. I hope you like honey. I hope no one's allergic to honey. But it's sweet, sweet honey that revives our spirits. It's like real honey, not artificial sweetener, right? Like, we're not, when we're dealing with God, when we're reading and taking from his word, we're not worried about our figures here, right? This is like whole milk, you know? Like, this is the real deal. And if, and this is David telling us about this, so if we remember David's story, we also remember Jonathan's story in 1 Samuel 14. You see, in that story, the Israelite soldiers were kind of in a bind because they're fighting the Philistines and, and their leader, Saul, Jonathan's dad, swears this big oath that none of his men should eat anything until they taste victory. 
uh, for the Lord. And like, but like what always happens when you're roaming through a forest with your army and you're really hungry, there's like this gusher of a honeycomb, like just out of nowhere. And it's like, I gotta have that honeycomb. Everyone else in this whole army passes on it because they fear Saul. They, they heard Saul say that, but Jonathan dips the end of his staff into it and takes a bite. And it says, his eyes lit up. Jonathan's newfound vibrancy then helps them defeat and plunder the Philistines. And the troops then help save Jonathan's life because they tell Saul, like, you can't do this. What are you doing? <laughs> but God's word then is, is good. It's better than honey. It's even better than gold. Like in this story, it's better than the plunder. It's better than the honey. God's word is reliable. It's much more perfect than Saul's hasty pronouncements, than our hasty pronouncements. His word is faithful. So we're to lap it up. We drink it to the dregs. We join the, the clean plate club of God's word because his word gives life and we can't get enough of it. And this is a theme that, that pops up throughout Scripture. Taking God's word not only into your head, memorizing, meditating, but into your body, letting it become a part of your being, letting it nourish you and empower you, and, and empower your actions, your habits, your postures in this world. Take the, the prophet Ezekiel. He hears a voice and it says, Son of man, eat the thing that you found. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. The prophets are crazy, y'all. Never try to be a prophet because you're going to wind up eating scrolls and doing crazy stuff. Eat the scroll. Go to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, human one, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it in my mouth. It became as sweet as honey. Then that... That word empowered Ezekiel for vision. He was fed to go. Then later, John the Revelator hears similarly. It says, Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the open scroll from the hand of the angel that stands on the sea and land. So I went to the angel, told him to give me the scroll, and he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make... <laughs> You sick to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn. This is not comfort food, this scripture. There are times when God's word will actually unsettle your stomach, will unsettle your life. But it will ultimately nourish you as you embody this message for this one precious and wild life. I think Eugene Peterson's correct in saying, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture, we assimilate it. Take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions to the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. Finally, as we, as we read and sing these psalms, 
as we have our hearts and our imaginations expanded for this community of creation, this community of praise that we're part of, as we consume and are consumed by God's word, which pulls our lives together, we come to recognize God's glory, God's glory all around us. You see, God's glory is coming and it is here. In Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. It's from John 1. The tabernacle that once served as a container for God's glory now has been manifested not in tent skins, but in flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. So when you read these psalms, and go this week and read, read through some songs, read through this psalm, try to read them Christologically. And what I mean by that is read them with Jesus at the center. Read them out of Jesus' mouth, but also, also read them um, with Jesus as the, as the main character. See how crazy your world expands. Because the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in heavens, he has brought peace through the blood of his cross. So when you read glory, read Christ. The heavens and sky, day and night, speaking wordless words about the word, capital W telling us something about their cosmic king. And then in that psalm, the son starts miming the return of the bridegroom to return to his church and make us perfect, make us beautiful. And then the moon running like a marathoner, like in Paul's letters, fighting the good fight. And when we look at Jesus, we look at his life, and we look at his words, he models and he calls us to this sort of seeing, this sort of childlike wonder. Think about when, in, in the Sermon on the Mount when, when he, he gestures towards creation and says, consider the lilies. Or, or when he's marching towards Jerusalem and he says, if, if y'all don't cry out, the rocks are going to cry out. And then this call, this call to childlike wonder from Christ. Unless you repent, unless you change your heart in your minds and become like little children, you will not receive the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become Abba's kids, you won't be in the family. Also read these psalms pneumatologically. And that sounds like it should be a word at like a car center with like a pneumatological drill or something. But what it really means is that the spirit is at the center. Consider what this means. That God's glory has been shown to us in Christ and in creation and now resides in us because of the Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or as Ephesians 2 puts it, Christ is building you into a place where God lives through his Spirit. A living sacrifice a sanctuary. Wouldn't that change the way, you, the way that you looked around? And, and wouldn't that change the way that you spend your time? For me, it means spending a lot less time looking at a screen 
and probably more looking at creation or looking at the face of someone I love or, or looking at the face of someone I'm learning to love because Christ already loves them and is already working their redemption through me with them. If all this is true, it makes David's last phrase make a whole lot of sense. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. But not in an ashamed way, not, in a, not even in a healthy, fearful way, like Isaiah 6, you know, when he encounters the glory of God. I think it's, it's more in a way that says, don't disqualify me from being with you in this mission. It asks to be included. It asks to be a part of what God's doing. It asks for help to recognize God's glory. Take away thoughts, take away words that aren't keen on, that aren't included on, that don't have this open secret in mind. It asks to recognize God's glory and to be able to articulate it with our words, with our lives. To articulate lavish grace well in Christ by the Spirit. To be filled with that glory. So will you pray that prayer this week? Matt, can can you put that up? It's just the last scripture slide. It's really short and it's really easy to memorize if you don't already know it. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The end reminds us of God's steadfastness, our rock, his faithfulness in saving us, our redeemer. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words of Scripture. We thank you for blowing wide open our small imaginations, our small spiritual lives, our parochial understandings of how you're working. Lord, with creation, help us join in their praise. Lord, help us know what you're doing in our lives and our hearts. And Lord, if, if we haven't invited you in, if we haven't asked you to work, ask you to begin that work of renewal, Lord, help us to do so. Send your spirit to revive us. The psalmist always talks about revive us again. Revive us. Give us new life. Save us. Lord, if we need to make those words our words, make them our words. Lord, we thank you for having a way more lively imagination for what you're going to do with us than we do most of the time. We thank you for for your outrageous grace that imagines us made new. We thank you for the ways that you take our brokenness and, and you piece it together and, and you do so in a way that, that just is shocking. It's shocking to us and it's shocking um, the things that we're going to get to keep that are just going to be renewed. Lord, help us. Just keep, help, keep helping our, us grow in our ability to imagine this. This is crazy. We thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.